hear God's word for us this morning. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word for us this morning. Amen. Be seated. Well, as we do come to God's word and as we've just sung... Let's pray again and ask the Lord to speak. Lord, we come to your word humbly, knowing that it has the power to give us life, to change us, to make us more like Christ. And so we need you to speak this morning, and we need to hear from you. And so I pray that you would be faithful to your promises. In Christ's name we pray and ask, amen. Well, the year was 1944 when C.S. Lewis, uh, some of you have probably heard of him, uh, delivered the memorial lecture at King's College in London. The lecture was titled, The Inner Ring. And in this lecture, Lewis famously highlighted uh, the hurt of being ostracized by and the attraction of being accepted by various societal inner rings. He said, my main purpose in this address is simply to convince you that this desire to be part of the inner ring is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. It is one of the factors which will go to make up the world as we know it. Lewis went on to draw out the the desire that we have, that all of us have, Perhaps if you're on the outside of whatever ring that you're trying to be on the inside of, that you want to be there, if the inner ring even really exists at all. And he also pointed out that there is a desire for those on the inside to keep those who are on the outside out. Uh, It's a brilliant reflection on our disordered desires. But it's also as if he's holding up a mirror uh, for culture to look itself in the face Uh, And it reflected this insider-outsider dynamic that's prevalent in almost every part of culture. Real or not, there is a perception that there's always someone or a group of people who's more on the inside or more in the know than you are, than I am. Uh, It happens in the business world. It certainly happens in politics. It happens in all grades of school. Uh, And it even happens in churches sometimes and in families. One of the unfortunate consequences of this phenomenon is that the insider-outsider dynamic can create within us, us versus them battle lines. And that's certainly unfortunate. And as Christians, we also feel this tension with our faith. If you have repented of your sins and you are trusting in Christ alone this morning for your salvation, you are in Christ. Paul has been telling us that throughout the book of Colossians. You'll you'll notice that that's one of the most repeated phrases in the entire letter, being in Christ. Everything is in him. 
So when the blood of Christ is applied to you, you are transferred, uh, he says in 113, you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. You are inside. Now, this doesn't set you up as some, uh, with some mythical insider powers like the Illuminati or anything like that. Uh, and as far as I know, there's not a college church Illuminati. Um, maybe, I don't know. Um, but you are firmly inside the family of God, right? And this is a glorious truth in which we've already celebrated the realities of that this morning as we've communed together and we've taken communion. So that's something we should celebrate, but the reality remains. As the old saying goes, we're not of the world, yet we are still in the world. And that leaves us right in the middle of this insider-outsider tension. You feel it. I feel it. There's a temptation for us to retreat into our own Christian subculture with our, with our Christian friends, to protect what's ours until Jesus comes. We see the walls of the church perhaps as sort of the curtain walls of a castle shielding us from those on the outside. But we also know that there's a call to be light in the midst of darkness. As we heard just a few Sunday nights ago, to dine with sinners and tax collectors just as Jesus did. And we feel this tension more and more and more as culture changes, even here in our community, in Wheaton. Uh, Perhaps, under your breath, or maybe not so under your breath, uh, you've heard something referred to as the Wheaton bubble, right? Now, as someone who has come in as a Wheaton outsider, I didn't go to Wheaton College. I'm not related to anyone who did. Don't look at me like that. Um, As someone who's come in, I know this tension a little bit, and I've seen it, and and I've experienced it, uh, and I know many of you have felt that in some sense or another, for better or for worse. But from a church perspective, per capita, even Wheaton uh, perhaps was or still is the most church, one of the most church towns in the country. And we look around and wonder, is that even still true? And if it's not, what should I do as churches around us close their doors and perhaps reopen as mosques? What's my role? What's our church's role as we are firmly planted here in the middle of this community? Do we draw ourselves in and hunker down, so to speak, so that they don't affect us? Or do we abandon everything, disconnecting from the power that we have in Christ as insiders in order to reach the outsider? Well, fortunately, that's a bit of a false dichotomy, and Paul doesn't leave us without direction or exhortation this morning. As he wraps up the body of his letter to the church at Colossae, this is the second to last sermon in this series. It's been a great privilege to be a part of that this summer. Uh, We'll wrap that up next week. But as Paul is wrapping up the body of the letter, he cuts this insider-outsider tension um, as we feel as Christians with two exhortations. He says, to remain steadfastly connected to your insider power, which is prayer, and pursue those who are on the outside with grace. So as followers of Jesus who live in this tension, we are called to be diligently connected to God through prayer, relying on his power and on his wisdom in order to walk wisely or to pursue relationships with the outsider, those who have yet to trust in Christ. And so I want to mirror what Paul does this morning, and I want to cut that tension by first looking at verses 2 through 4 and our insider power, which is prayer. And then second will hopefully alleviate some of that tension further by looking at verses 5 through 6 as we look at our outsider 
pursuit. So insider power, outsider pursuit. As followers of Christ, those who are in Jesus, as we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter, those within the family of God, we might even consider ourselves insiders. And because we are so, we have power. And what is that power? Well, straight from the text today, it is prayer. You see, prayer is our direct connection and ability to address God. It's ours in Christ to take advantage of. Hebrews tells us that we should draw near to the throne of grace. How? With confidence. We should draw near with confidence because of Jesus. This is one of the great undeserved privileges that we have as believers. And so Paul is telling his readers to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And this is a bit of a personal instruction when it comes to prayer. And he highlights three things uh, about prayer, three ways to look at prayer. And of course, there is much more to be said about prayer than it is these verses. But one of the joys of being able to preach this way is that today we get to focus um, on these three aspects. And those are prayer is continual, prayer is watchful, and prayer is thankful. So first, prayer is continual. It's important to note that Paul is making a bit of an assumption with his readers in Colossae as he gives them this command to continue steadfastly in prayer. And so what is that assumption? Well, the clue comes in the word continue. Continue is a command that calls uh, us to carry on something that's already happening, right? In this case, it's prayer. So some of your translations say, devote yourself to prayer or to persevere in prayer. And so from this, it is right to say that prayer should be a regular, continual part of the Christian life. We know this as well from other parts of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, to pray how? To pray without ceasing. Acts 1.14 describes the early church as those who were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. And so what does it mean that we should pray continually? Or to pray uh, steadfastly, to be steadfast in prayer. Well, to continue steadfastly in prayer as a follower of Christ means that we remain dependent on God by praying repeatedly and often. This also carries with it this urge to not give up in prayer, to continue steadfastly. And so I wonder this morning... As summer is winding down, and perhaps there's something that's been heavy on your heart this summer, or you've been praying about something maybe for a long time, do you feel like throwing in the towel to give up? Steadfastness sounds far away from you as you consider your prayer life. Uh, maybe you come in here this morning after hearing last week's message on, on marriage and work, and you think, I've been praying about these things, and I don't know what to do. Well, Paul's command this morning isn't to highlight a weakness for us, but to remind you of what is yours in Christ. The only way that Paul is even able to encourage us to continue to persevere in prayer is because we are connected to the Father through Christ in the first place. So to walk away from prayer or to simply not pray, to neglect, is to cut the power cord to the Father that is available to you and I as insiders of those who are in Christ as a redeemed son or daughter of God. And so my exhortation to you this morning is don't give up. Remain steadfast and continue in prayer. Well, the second thing is that prayer is watchful. What does that mean? Well, prayer should be driven by an alertness to all that is going on around us. It means that we are attentive and alive to the leading of the Spirit and the will of God in our prayer life. 
We are able to perceive the circumstances that we're in and then parlay that into prayer. That could be prayers of rejoicing or adoration, thanksgiving, prayers perhaps though of lament, prayers of confession, prayers in response to trials or prayers of supplication. In other words, praying for others. Being watchful is an intentional urgency and awareness to connect your circumstances on the day-to-day to the power of God by prayer. It's the same command that Jesus gave to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before he was betrayed and crucified, he exhorted them to what? To watch and pray so that they may not enter into temptation. But what did they do? They fell asleep, which is hopefully what you're not doing right now. But they fell asleep, which is the opposite of being watchful, right? And then when uh, circumstances changed and it got difficult, what did they do? They fled. And so one way to put this into practice is to think of it like this, to pray right away. In other words, when there is an opportunity to pray, because our time is short and we're alert and watchful, do it right then. Sometimes with good intentions, perhaps, we say to someone, I'll pray for you about that. And then we walk away, life happens, and prayer just simply escapes us. But by being alert and watchful, instead of saying, I'll pray for you later, say, can we pray right now? We'll just pray right now. It doesn't have to be long, but meet the need and pray right then and right there. Maybe after the service, the person you're sitting next to will express to you a prayer request. Pray right then. You don't, it's the 11 o'clock service. Nobody's coming in after you. You can stay and pray. I've rarely met the person who turns down the opportunity to be prayed for. Now, one caution, being watchful and alert in prayer is not the same as being an alarmist. This is not a call to paranoia in prayer. So we want to balance our hearts with the alertness, but how do we do that? Well, we do that with this next exhortation to be thankful. So prayer is watchful, but it's also thankful. Now, to be thankful in prayer is an often repeated command by Paul throughout his letters. But by my estimation, perhaps yours, as often as it's repeated, it's also often overlooked. Um, Paul commends this many, many times. And this is similar to God's exhortation to his people in the Old Testament to remember what God has done so that they won't fall away. Because what is thanksgiving if it's not a call uh, to remember with gratitude what God has done and for who he is? And so by remembering what God has done with gratitude, with a spirit of thanksgiving, as we cultivate that within ourselves, we are indeed cultivating within us a Godward perspective that settles the paranoid heart of fear that's sometimes filled with anxiety, and it enables us to firmly continue with our watchfulness our watchful connection to God through prayer. And so all of these things work together that make up our personal prayer life. And so my question to you this morning is, are you persevering and continuing in prayer? Are you watchful and alert? Perhaps you are, and this is just an exhortation to continue in that way. Are you regularly thankful? Well, in verses three and four, Paul shifts from this personal instruction Uh, and focus to a a bit of a missional focus, if you will, in prayer. And he says, pray also for us that God may open a door for, for us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, 
that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So this is a prayer request of sorts by Paul to a church, again, who he's never met before. He's never been there, and so he's asked, but he's asking them to pray. And in this, he conveys two things about this missional outlook, this missional out- aspect of prayer, and that prayer is both dependent and expectant. Dependent and expectant. And so the dependency here is on God in that Paul knows that if the mission that he's on to declare the mystery of Christ is going to happen at all, it's because God will open the door. It's God's message and God will open it, open the door for it. It's not a prayer that first asks for Paul to be strengthened. Paul's not asking for safety, though those are good things to pray for, but it's a prayer of dependence on God to sovereignly work to accomplish his purposes, what he wants done by opening a door for his word, for God's word to go forward. It's God's gospel, he will make a way. And so in this case, the mantra, if it's gonna be, it's up to me, doesn't exactly hold water because if it's gonna be in the world of gospel proclamation, it's really up to God. And so if a door is going to open, it's true that God must turn the doorknob And so I wonder how many of our prayers express this kind of dependency on God for him to move. Well, there's also an expectancy here. While we are dependent on God, to be sure, at the same time, it's right and good for us to be expectant that he will do what he said he will do because he is faithful to his word, to his promises. And so in this case, Paul is expecting a door to be open so that he can declare the mystery of Christ, the gospel, and that God will equip him to speak clearly. Now notice that he's not praying for eloquence. He's not praying for brilliance. He's not praying to be clever. He's simply asking for clarity. The gospel is simple. If you struggle with uh, a simple presentation of the gospel, um, let me encourage you to serve in Kids Harbor. Yeah, this isn't a plug just for uh, the children's ministries, but really, if you want to grow in your gospel presentation and how to share the gospel simply, talk to kids. The gospel message doesn't have to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be witty or clever. It's simple and clear. And this is what Paul is asking for for himself. But a bit of contextual work here. Where is Paul when he's writing this? He says it right here. He's in prison. What prison is he in? Well, it's, it's likely that he's in Rome, the heart of the Roman Empire. Not a great place to be for a Christian. And so what Paul is asking for is an equipping by God to do what he has called Paul to do, that is to declare the gospel in the place where he is, a Roman prison. And so Paul is alert and watchful in his own circumstances, knowing that it is likely that he will get an opportunity to clearly proclaim the good news about Jesus in a place where many, many people would never have the opportunity to go otherwise. And probably most people don't want to go, right? So he recognizes his place in redemptive history. And no matter the dire circumstances that he's finding himself in, he's kind of like a racehorse. You know, you ever seen a racehorse waiting for the gates to open? They're chomping at the bit to charge down that track. And this is Paul waiting for God to open a door so that he might charge through with the message of the gospel. And this raises our call to be watchful for our own opportunities as well. 
it tells us that there is no circumstance, friends, there is no circumstance where we shouldn't be expectant for the opportunity to declare the gospel. God can open any door. You hear me? God can open any door, which means that those doors that you have stopped knocking on, that you've abandoned and said, I'm not sure, to continue to pray. The challenge is to continue to pray that God would open a door for you or for someone you know to declare the gospel because he can make a way. And so are you praying like that? Are you tempted to think that God can't open a door or won't open a door for the gospel in whatever it is circumstance that you have in mind? And are you inviting others to join you in those prayers as Paul is doing here, praying uh, with him and for him? One of the great joys that I have here at the church is to go visit many of you in the hospital when you're there. Um, And many times when I visit, uh, circumstances are pretty tough. Um, but one of the questions we always ask is, how can I be praying for you? And sometimes that's very obvious, um, but the responses aren't always obvious because so many times, and I just want to encourage you in this way, that it encourages me when we go uh, to visit, that more often than not, I'm met with the prayer request that says, I know I'm in the hospital, but while I'm here, would you pray that I'll have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone? I was, in fact, talking with someone yesterday at a wedding reception And they were sharing to me that their father was in the hospital or had been in the hospital. And life and death situation for this man. And the entire time that he was in there, he was disregarding his own emergency and asking for his adult children to bring him gospel tracts that he might share the gospel with those because he didn't know how much time he had left. And so he was in the middle of really difficult circumstances. Those that we don't, most of us don't want to be in. He was still looking for an opportunity to be a gospel witness there. That's being expectant. And so this expectancy means that we should be praying towards that end. It also means that we should be praying for those like Paul who have been, for those who like Paul who have been called to share the gospel in places that we might not go otherwise. Take out your worship folder. Hold it up high. Look at this. This is really just to make sure that you're all paying attention. You can put it down now. Um, But look on the back. Look on the back. Every week, did you know this, on the back of your worship folder, every week, praying for global missions. Every week, we highlight people within our college church family and community who are likely in places proclaiming the gospel that you and I will never go. This morning, we have Steve and Lois Dresselhaus who are in La Paz, Mexico. I'm guessing that you're not planning a trip to La Paz anytime soon. Maybe you are. That'd be great. And, it, and it's likely that you may not even know the Dressel houses. But remember, the church in Colossae didn't know Paul, and he didn't really know them, yet he's asking for prayer. And so the fact that we don't know a missionary, not a great excuse to not pray. Because we're never going to go there, not a great excuse to not pray. In fact, this every week is an invitation for you to do exactly and put into practice exactly what Paul is calling us to do and to pray for each other that a door might be opened for the gospel. And so this afternoon, even even today, you can pray for the Dressel Houses that they will have an opportunity in La Paz, Mexico to proclaim the gospel. And we have lots of other opportunities for you to know about prayer. Someone gave me this and reminded me of this after the last service. This is our prayer calendar. If you want to pray every day specifically for gospel opportunities, pick up one of these. 
But all this is wrapped up in this power that is available to us as believers, as insiders, as it were, followers of Christ, both personally and missionally. This is our call to prayer. We've been given a great privilege, right? And invited to plead with God for an open door for his gospel to go forward. No matter the circumstances, he is powerfully at work and gives opportunities for the declaration of his word, the mystery of Christ. And so this is our insider power. Let's stay connected. Well, in true Pauline fashion, I think he's aiming to step on all the toes on both of our feet this morning by addressing these two things that many of us find difficult. And perhaps for you, first off, that has been prayer. And the second is evangelism, so to speak. Uh, And so we've looked at our insider power. Let's now look at our outsider pursuit in verses five and six. And as we've already looked at the insider-outsider tension that I raised at the beginning, working from that framework, here Paul raises and gives us this word outsider, which used here simply means non-believers or someone who's not a Christian. And this isn't meant to be a divisive statement, a label that we put on someone. It's simply a statement of fact and reality. And just like with prayer, Paul is making another assumption of us. He rightly assumed about prayer that we would have that as a regular part of our Christian life. Here, he is exhorting his readers to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, and the assumption is that as Christians, we actually know and live life with those who aren't followers of Christ. They don't follow Jesus, and in turn, they know us. In 2016, last year, if you can remember back that far, uh, we conducted a, an evangelism survey within a college church. And so over 400 roughly uh, folks, members and regular attenders of college church were surveyed. And there were some very encouraging findings. 72% of those surveyed pray regularly for unbelievers by name. 73% had shared the gospel with someone in the past year in some way. And so if that's you this morning, if you know that you fall into those categories and you're constantly praying and seeking for opportunities, keep it up. Don't stop. But the survey also revealed the reality that many of us do indeed live inside of a Christian bubble. Uh, So just almost 30% of those surveyed from our church had little to no contact or relationship with those who were not Christians. Friends, if we are not careful... Our world can become very small and turned in on ourselves, all the while neglecting this call to walk towards outsiders who are not in the faith. And so what is meant then by this call to walk in wisdom towards outsiders? Well, walking here, as he's used throughout his letter, means that as you live your life, as you are leading your life, you are to be wise with your actions towards those outside the faith. Don't be foolish, but yet be intentional. Be wise. And so just like prayer, this type of intentionality doesn't happen by accident. This is a proactive, intentional way of living. So our outsider pursuit is intentional. So what does it mean to be wise in this way? Well, many times questions of wisdom aren't about right and wrong. That's why we say this is a wisdom issue. It's not just so black and white. Most of the time, wisdom questions are questions of what's best in a particular situation. And so what's best when it comes to your relationship to those outside the faith? Well, Paul tells us to make the best use of your time. 
In the original here, we could literally translate this as buying out or buying back your time, which is why in some translations, like the New King James, it reads, redeeming the time. Or yours might say, make the most of every opportunity. So what does it mean to be wise and intentional with outsiders? Well, from what he says here, it means that we must also be redemptive in our outsider pursuit. So intentional and redemptive. If Paul is asking the Colossians to pray for an open door for the gospel with his walk in his circumstances in Rome, he's now alerting the Colossians themselves to follow his lead by making the most of every opportunity with those who have yet to follow Jesus, by buying back the time that is slipping away. We don't know how much time that we have left. We don't know about every conversation that we have. Um, So that we should be redemptive with our time towards those friends and family and neighbors who are far from God. And let me encourage you this morning that God can and will use you to be an instrument of redemption in the lives of those around you. The question is, are you willing? Are you willing? So how do you do this? Well, by progression, he tells us in verse 6 that we should let our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So the progression works like this. How are you intentional? By being redemptive. Now, in order to be redemptive, you must now be verbal. Verbal. You must actually use words. Speech. So this kind of takes an axe to the tree of excuses that might grow up in our daily living that says, I'll just let my actions do the talking. And that might be true in some circumstances uh, and, and needed. And as much as the gospel is something that we live out, it's also something that we declare. It's something that we say. It's something that we speak. Therefore, our words need to be full of grace, right? Not combative, not defensive or angry. Our words shouldn't be uh, some, some, something that further exasperates this insider-outsider tension uh, that's sometimes rendered as us versus them. Gracious speech tears down walls rather than builds them higher. Also, gracious speech here is more than just a call to be cordial or to be polite or Midwestern nice or uh, perhaps exhibit a little Southern hospitality. That only applies to me, I think. But this is what it means to be gracious. This, This isn't a call to Christian pleasantries. Here, graciousness, being gracious, is consistent with what Paul nor- the way Paul normally uses the word grace in connection to divine grace. Now, I don't think Paul is meaning here that every time that we uh, meet with an outsider, have them into our home, talk, however the communication happens, that we must uh, cram in the full message and full witness of the gospel. But it does mean that our speech is with a winsome and attractive tone. And with winsome and attractive vocabulary that is consistent with the saving message of the gospel. And so that's the how. What's the when? Well, he says always. When should you speak like this? Always. Well, interesting thing here about this this word always that in the original, uh, the word that we translate as always actually means always. (laughs) At all times. In other words, there's no... uh, Loop, a loophole that we're looking for that says, I cannot speak graciously at this time and I get a pass. No, it's always, there's no out. And so as you evaluate in your mind right now the conversations that you've had even this past week, um, is that true of you? 
Is that true of you, that you're gracious? Well, Paul also says that our, our gracious words, words should, should be seasoned with salt. Now, that sounds familiar to us, if you're familiar with the words of Jesus, as he said to his followers that we are the salt of the earth. And so it's no coincidence that our words should be salty. Now, I don't mean that in like the naval sense of the word. Um, If you're in the Navy, you know what I mean. Um, And that doesn't mean sarcastic or clever or witty. But this is a, a metaphor for flavorful speech. Now, some of you have gotten to know me over the years that uh, I'm a fan of, of cooking meat over fire, right? Right, that's good. Um, and I have a preference, uh, if I have a preference, uh, it's that that is cooked over a low temperature for a long time, uh, perhaps with some smoke, apple or oak, if you're wondering. Um, and perhaps maybe you've traveled to Texas, where this was totally confirmed with some friends after the last service, some native Texans, um, that if you've been to Texas and had maybe an 18 to 20 hour Texas brisket, you know that the only thing that they season their meat with is salt and pepper. Maybe in some regions, some chili powder, but usually it's only coarse salt and pepper and never sauce, never. Now, I know that there are barbecue lines throughout this country, but in Texas, there is no sauce. Now, why is there no sauce? Well, I once heard a Texas pitmaster say, sauce, I don't need any sauce. I ain't got nothing to hide. <laughs> and so, you see, in Texas, they understand that meat all by itself is flavorful. You just put salt and pepper on it because it doesn't hide the flavor of the meat. And that's one of the many uses of salt. It brings out what was already there. And that's how our speech should be in relationship to the gospel. It brings out what's already there. It doesn't cover it up. It doesn't hide it. it graciously, it's graciously and wisely salty. In other words, you can think of it this way. It arouses the taste buds of the heart and the mind of the listener. And so to be gracious and seasoned with salt, you're not pushy. You're not offensive This isn't a chance for you just to let your personality go unchecked. If you're the type of person who just says whatever's on your mind, uh, that's probably a personality trait that needs a little self-control. Listen, the gospel is offensive all by itself. There's no need to add the personal offense of my poor attitude or harsh words to the offense in telling someone and telling myself that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And so, friends, let's not be those who mix gunpowder with our salt. Well, there is an end goal to all of this, and Paul gets us there. And the end goal is to give an answer, to give an answer. Paul concludes that by saying, uh, saying that all of this wise and redemptive talking, this uh, redemptive walking and gracious talking with the outsider is in order to give an answer to each person. So if your speech, or however you're communicating these days, social media, uh, comment sections on social media, you should probably avoid those. Grace and logic, not found there very often. But if your speech is harsh and rough, it's likely that you are losing or have lost already an audience to hear what answer that you might have to give for the gospel. If you are faithfully, though, building up relational capital with folks, with friends, you must then seek the Lord to know how you might answer each person that has yet to trust Christ. 
Christ. It's impossible, though, to break down those walls by using harsh speech. And so we need to know how we must, must answer each person that God might be gracious to use you, to use me, maybe even this week, to bring those who are on the outside to the inside, to being in Christ, not some exclusive club that we invite people to or hold people at arm's length from, but we invite them to the gracious, loving arms of the Savior. This is our call to be intentional, to be redemptive, and yes, verbal in our outsider pursuit. And just like prayer connects us to God, our outsider pursuit connects us with others. And so stay connected. Well, as we conclude, and we've looked at the importance of staying connected to this insider privilege and power that we have through prayer that fuels our outsider pursuit, I wonder where that leaves you this morning. I wonder where that leaves us. Perhaps you do feel disconnected from God. Well, I hope you, you'll be hopeful as you leave here this morning. Perhaps you need to stay and pray for just a little while. But my encouragement to you is to uh, purpose to make continual steadfast prayer a priority, even this week, maybe even today. Or perhaps God is opening the eyes of your heart to come out from behind the walls, from behind which you've been hiding. Seeing this us versus them, this insider-outsider tension is something to avoid. And he's calling you to be a gracious proclaimer of his gospel. Maybe one of the steps of graciousness that you need to take this week is to consider how perhaps your gracelessness, maybe in some words that were untimely or um, poorly spoken, have led to a disconnect. And maybe you need to be the one to go mend that broken or burned bridge this week. Or perhaps you'll ask others to pray for you or seek out how you might pray for others so that we might all be those who declare the mysteries of Christ. And so as we conclude, let's pray together towards that end. Lord, we are grateful for your word and how it shapes us and instructs us to greater fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that we would not neglect prayer in our own lives, that it might be something that you use in our lives to draw us closer to you, but also that we might take advantage of the opportunity that we have to pray for others and pray for opportunities to speak the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would encourage each one of us in our prayer life, that we might be those, a church, who is seeking after you diligently. But Lord, also, I pray that you would equip each one of us in our relationships to those who are outside the faith, that we would not see that as a label or something to avoid, but Lord, a calling to embrace. And so that you might strengthen um, shaky knees where nervousness might exist, that you might uh, humble the prideful so that we might be those who bring reconciliation to damaged circumstances, perhaps over words that have been uh, poorly spoken in the past. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage, that we might be bold witnesses of the grace that you have so graciously shown us in Christ. May this be true of us, even this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.